Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for the warm welcome. I'm super excited to be here. The last time I was over here, it was freezing rain, and I somehow managed to drive here in snow this morning, but, but that's okay. Hopefully, if I'm back in June or July, you might actually get a sunny morning. Hey, if you're here this morning, and it's your first time here, like Russ said, you're very welcome. Um, I'm excited to be over here. We're finishing up a series that's called When God Doesn't Make Sense. We're going to be in the book of Habakkuk, and that's been the running joke, um, that there is actually a book in the Bible called Habakkuk being legit this morning. I'm going to be in chapter three this morning, and I'm going to be going verse by verse. So if you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, if you forgot your Bible, that's okay. Um, But just throw your hand up in the air. We have some lovely ushers here that would love to get a copy of God's Word into your hand this morning. And once you get that Bible, I'll give you a a hand in finding where you're going to be this morning. You're going to be in page uh, 510 this morning if you use one of those Bibles that the usher's handing out. If you are feeling good about yourself and you're like, hey, I brought my own Bible to church this morning, then uh, we're just going to humble you and watch you struggle to find the book of Habakkuk for a moment, okay? (laughs) You know what, as you do that, um, I think most of us know the TV show Family Feud, right? It's a show where the two families come on and uh, and, uh, they they answer these questions, but to start the round, to to get your family to play the round, they bring one family member of each family together. And uh, I love this part of the show because they ask them a question, and it's the first one to to hit the buzzer and come up with one of the correct answers, one of the top five answers, then their their family gets to to play the round, right? So so I was watching it recently, and and the guys come out, and the host says, this is his question, he says, name a phrase that commonly comes after the word pork. Okay, the guy hits the buzzer straight away, and he says, you pan. And the guy's like, what? He says, you pan. Pork, you pan. And he's like, what? (laughs) Like... That doesn't make sense, dude. Like, I don't know. I don't really know what comes after pork. Pork chop, pork tenderloin, I don't know. But this guy decided that pork you pan was his answer. And the guy's like, that doesn't make sense, man. And everybody's laughing, right? Well, you know what? We're coming to this book of Habakkuk this morning. And, and the title of this series has been When God Doesn't Make Sense. Because Habakkuk's in a trial. He's in a struggle. He's in a hard place in his life. And he's crying out to God. And God answers him. And Habakkuk's, Habakkuk's response is like, God, that doesn't make sense. That's not the answer that I was expecting. So like I said, we're going to be in chapter 3 this morning, but very quickly, a quick recap for us if you've missed some of this. Let's go to chapter 1 first of all. So Habakkuk's a prophet, and he's crying out to God. He's in a dark, grim situation. Look at verse 2 in chapter 1. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? He's full of these questions. He's saying, why, God? Why am I here? Why do, you, why do you make me see this? Why do you idly not do anything while all of this is happening? In verse 4, he says, the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. The wicked surrounds the righteous. Justice is perverted. Habakkuk's crying out to God, and he's saying, God, do you not see this? God, where are you? I need, I need a miracle. Save me from this. Turn up, God. Come on. Habakkuk's scared because we, we've seen in the first week these uh, Chaldeans, the Babylonian army, they're, they're around them and it looks like they're going to come in and wipe them out. So he's crying out to God and look at, look at how God answers him. The Lord answers him in verse 5. And he says this, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. God answers and says, Habakkuk, yes, I do see this. You know what? The very thing that you're actually scared of, the very thing that looks like it's going to be hard and difficult in the time to come, God says, I'm actually in command and control of that. Habakkuk's response is like, what? How does that make sense? That's not the answer I was expecting. 
When we go to chapter 2 and in God's grace and his mercy, he, he, he reveals to Habakkuk a little more of, of what he's doing and how he's at work and of who he is. We get to chapter 2 and he reassures Habakkuk that he's in control. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. God here answers and he's talking about this, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians that he's raising up. And he says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But he says this, but the righteous shall live by his faith. That's a verse that's quoted three times in the New Testament. The righteous shall live by his faith. So God says, you know what, Habakkuk, one day, one day this will all be made right. One day this will be put in its place. But look what he says just a verse earlier in verse 3. He says, the vision awaits its appointed time. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. God says, you're going to have to wait on me. And that's what we looked at last week. He says, you're going to have to wait because Habakkuk, my timing is right. Perhaps you're here this morning and, and you're in a valley. You're in a trial. You're in a hard, dark place. The months ahead, maybe even the years ahead, looks like there's no hope. It looks like it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. You know what? Perhaps you've even grown tired on waiting for God. Perhaps you're Habakkuk in, in chapter one. You're like, God, where are you? Do you not hear me? Do you not see me? Perhaps you've just get, even given up in your prayer life. Maybe you're here and you're saying, God, I don't like your timing. God, I, I want a miracle. I don't want to walk through this. But we see God's answer to, to Habakkuk here. He says, I'm not going to give you the miracle. I am at work but it's going to be in my timing, not yours, and I'm not lifting you out of this situation. I'm not performing this miracle that you're praying for, but you know what? I'm actually going to use this hard, difficult time, and I'm going to bring you closer to me. So we're getting to chapter three this morning. We're looking at how does Habakkuk respond to this. Well, what we're going to actually do is I'm going to jump you right to the very end of chapter three, and we're going to look at how Habakkuk and where Habakkuk's heart and his faith ends up, and then we're going to go back and say, how on earth did he get there? Because look at chapter 3 and verse 17. Habakkuk says this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the Lord, and there be no herd in the stalls. He's painting the grimmest picture that he could possibly think of. And he says, though there be no hope. What does he say in verse 18? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. What? I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer. He makes me tread on my high places. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. How on earth does Habakkuk get from this point where, where he's, in this, he's in this valley, he's in this dark place where, where it all seems lost and hopeless and in despair. And, and even though God doesn't actually change any of the physical circumstances, it's still the, the physical, his life, and the situation that he was in looked the same. How does he finish up? He says, but God, you've taken my height to a new faith. You've taken my faith to a new height. You've taken me to a place what I never even thought I could be. I thought I was doing good over here, and, and you've brought me into this valley, and now, now my feet are like the deer, and now my faith is at a new height, and he's rejoicing in God. How on earth does he get there? Maybe you're here this morning, and you're like, I'm not going to get there. I, I'm not even sure of my faith anymore. I, I don't even, I'm kind of questioning, is God even good anymore? Well, let's walk through this morning. Let's walk through chapter three and see how God drew in Habakkuk, how, how Habakkuk's faith was strengthened through this. So let's go back to, to the start of the chapter, chapter three. 
So Habakkuk prays. In verse 2, he says this, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. So our first point this morning, if you're taking notes, is this. We need to fear the Lord. You might say, well, what? what? That seems strange. Why, would, why are you telling me to fear God for you? I've got lots of fears in my life. I'm in a low place in my life. I'm in a struggle. I want you to tell me that, that God's my refuge, that God's my strength, that God's my sanctuary. Why would you tell me to fear him? Well, the Bible tells us in, in both Proverbs and Psalms that the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In, in the Bible, the word fear is, uh, when it's translated, can mean several different things. It's used in different contexts. The first one that how fear is used, it refers to the terror one feels in a frightening situation. It's used that way in Deuteronomy. But it can also mean respect in the way a servant fears their master and faithfully serves them. The other thing fear can, can, can denote, it also denotes the, the reverence or awe that a person feels in the presence of greatness, of, in the presence of God's glory. And you know what? I believe that the fear of the Lord, if we grasp the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is actually a combination of all of those aspects. Because here's the thing, in order to develop the fear of the Lord, we have, to, we have to realize who God is. We realize that God is a holy, pure, just God, a righteous God that can't let sin go unpunished. And then when, when we realize how, how, we, how we're sinful, how we're broken, how we rebelled against God, how we've all messed up and gone our own way, Man, you suddenly realize how compromised you are before God, how, how unworthy you are before God. Think about Adam and Eve when they, when they sin in the Garden of Eden. What do they do? They run. They run and hide. They realize, God, you're, you're so holy, you're so worthy, and we're so unworthy, and we're so unholy, and they run and hide. But here's the thing. The fear of the Lord is not designed to make us run from God. The fear of the Lord is not designed to make us scared of opening up God's word. The exact opposite. The fear of the Lord is not designed to make you hesitant in your prayer life. God, can I even talk to you? Because here's the other aspect of fear. Then we realize that who God is, that he's a faithful master to us. Because what does God do in, in, the, in the Garden of Eden? He, he comes and he pursues Adam and Eve. He walks in the garden. He says, Adam, where are you? What did God do for us in our sinful state? He stepped out of heaven God as a man, Jesus, he came and walked on this earth and showed us how to live, showed us how to love one another, but did so much more even than that, revealed to us who God was, and, and he went to the cross and died for us, take, took a punishment that he didn't deserve. He lived a perfect life. He was the only person that could take the punishment for our sin. That it was, the Bible tells us that our sin was nailed to the cross, that it was buried in the ground, and that Jesus rose again. And what's he doing now? He's, he's interceding for us. He's sitting at the right hand of God, so that for those of us who believe in him, Jesus is saying, I've paid for that. That person's, that your sin is paid in full. And what does that do? That brings us into, the, into the, that relationship with God again. That we can run to God, that we can call him our heavenly father. You know what? When you grasp those two things, who God is, but also what he's done for us. That's where that third aspect of the fear of the Lord comes in, that reverence and awe, where you say, God, you are awesome. God, you are incredible. I'm so thankful. God, I'm going to live my whole life declaring what you've done for me. That's why we need the, the fear of the Lord this morning. You know what? The fear of the Lord is also really important because it does two things for us, two main things, which I'm going to walk through very quickly this morning. One is that it makes God 
our sanctuary. It does make God our sanctuary. It makes God that, that safe place that we can run to. Because here's the thing, when you fear the Lord, you don't have to fear anything else. The things that we can so easily be fearful of, fearful of losing our health, fearful of losing our, our marriage or our spouse or, or our family, fearful of our kids walking away in a way that we don't want them to walk. You know what, when you have the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord and who he is, it comes over all of those things. You can see this even in Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet and in his time he found himself in a similar situation to Habakkuk. The, the Assyrian army, it looked like they were gonna come in and wipe the people out and everyone's saying to Isaiah, you know, you need to be in fear of, of the Assyrians. See how powerful they are? Everybody's coming in and everybody's li- living in fear and buying into what they're saying and doing and Isaiah, in Isaiah 8, he says this, the Lord spoke to me with a strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy all, the, all that this people calls conspiracy. He says this, do not fear what they fear. If you're in Jesus Christ this morning, you don't have to fear what other people fear. He says, do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread, and verse 14 is beautiful. It says this, and he will become a sanctuary. When we fear the Lord, we don't want to have to fear anything else. God tells, that, God tells Habakkuk this in this book. What's he fearful of? He's fearful of the Babylonians, the Chaldeans coming in. And, and God answers him and says, Habakkuk, I'm in charge of that. I'm in control of that. I'm over that. God longs to be our sanctuary this morning. Whatever, we're, whatever you're naturally fearful of, God longs for you to, to run to him and say, hey, you don't have to fear that. Just fear me because I'm in control of that. God longs to be our sanctuary. And you know what? When we're in these times of hardship and trial, I believe that God often doesn't answer the why. He does answer, but he doesn't answer the why. He answers with who. This is who I am. I am your heavenly father. I am your sanctuary. It's so key in this book. There's a key point that God gave Habakkuk a revelation, not an explanation. I'm going to say that again. God gave Habakkuk a revelation. He revealed himself, a revelation of who he is, not an explanation for all of the circumstances. So often we seek an explanation. Why are you doing this to me, God? What about me? Why am I in this situation? Why are my kids not following you? Why is my spouse sick? Why did I lose my job? Why are my finances like this? And it's all about me, me, why, why? And God answers with who? God answers with revelation. He says, this is who I am. I'm a God who's in control. I'm a God whose timing is perfect and everything is in my timing. I'm a God who longs to be your sanctuary. So you know what? I'm not gonna answer with the why because I want you to rest in me. I'm gonna answer with who, who I am. I want you to fear me so you fear nothing else. You know what? For so many of us, it's so true. I can say it for myself. When we don't see the why, we feel like we can no longer see God. Think about it this way, okay? You ever had the kid who asks why all the time? So annoying, right? <laughs> if you want to be annoying, just start asking why. Why? 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 You always have to answer, right? I was, I was that little kid, okay? If I, was at, I was, if I was at my house and I see my daddy pop the hood of my car, ran out and me, Dad, why are you working on the car? Well, because, you know, we need an oil change. Why? Because we did lots of miles last month. Why? Because I had to take you lots of places last month. 
Why? Because, okay, like I finally get to that point where you're just like, there's always going to be another why. There's always going to be a why, and you know what? As a kid, I had to learn. I'm not always going to get the answer to why every single time. But I didn't, I had to learn that I could stand and say, I know what my, I know what my dad's doing. I can see him working on the car. I can see what he's doing. If, he, if he's waiting sometimes, I don't know. Like, is, is he waiting for the oil to go through the engine? Or like, I don't know what he's doing, but I, but I know that he's in control. I know that every time my dad knows what, what's going on under the hood of the car. And I had to be content with, with learning not always to ask why. But I had faith that I knew what my dad was doing. Could it be the same for us with God? Could it be that God uses these circumstances? Maybe this morning he's saying, stop asking why. Because I want you to ask who. I want you to ask God, who are you, so, I can, so he can reveal himself to you. Perhaps God wants to say to us this morning, I'm a God who's more important and more valuable to you than your health, than your money, than your current hardship. I'm a God you need to trust more than your spouse. I'm a God who is the only place that you can rest in fully. Perhaps God wants to say that to you this morning, that, that he is your sanctuary. Here's the thing, when, when we're in that place of asking why, and we're not getting the answer, the devil loves to come in and try to turn our hearts to bitterness and resentment against God when we can't see him. And that's, this, is what the second thi- this is what the second point, uh, what the fear of the Lord does for us. It also guards our hearts in him. That's why it's so important to fear the Lord. Very quickly, story of Job. Job was a man who got the fear of the Lord. God had blessed Job with, with so many material things in the earth. He, he, Job had it all. He had health and he had wealth and he had a great family and he had a house and he had all these servants and livestock and everything that you could possibly think of, but he feared the Lord. He honored the Lord. In Job 1, verse 8, we can see this. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Satan says to God, yeah, yeah, but but he's got all his stuff. His life's really good. You've given him everything. Of course he worships you. But, but take all that stuff away from him and watch him. He'll curse you. He'll, he'll turn his back on you. He'll, he'll turn to bitterness and resentment. So God says to him, Satan, you, you can do, do your worst. Do whatever you want to do with him, but, but spare his life. His life belongs to me. How beautiful is that, that we're in Christ. No matter what Satan throws at us, God can say, yeah, but your life is in me. So what happens is Satan comes in and he, he does his worst and Job, Job comes to this lowest of the low, low point. Everything is taken away from him. But you know what? Yet Job draws a line in the sand and says, I'm going to question God. I'm going to wrestle with my circumstances. But you know what? I'm not going to curse my God. I'm not going to turn my back on him. The Bible tells us that Job never sinned with his lips. He didn't let that bitterness and resentment from God uh, enter into his heart because he had a fear of the Lord. He knew who God was. And God answers him in chapter 38. You can maybe read it yourself. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And guess what? God doesn't answer why it all happened. What does he answer with? Who? Job, where were you when I spoke the world into existence? Job, where were you when I flung the stars into space? Job, where were you 
When I said to the oceans, this far shall you come and no further, God declares who he is to Job. And in Habakkuk here, in chapter three and verse two, he says, I've heard the report of the Lord. I've heard who God is. Habakkuk's saying, I still don't really understand a lot of the circumstance, but you know what? I'm choosing to fear God, to submit to him, to worship him and walk with him through this. I know he is good. You know what? That can be, like Eric was saying, that can be such a hard thing to do when we're in a dark valley, when there doesn't seem to be evidence around us that God is good when we can't look at those obvious things and say, yeah, God's blessing me in this way and we, we can't see it for ourselves. So the second thing that is so important for us to do this morning is this, we have to remember the Lord. We have to remember the Lord and, and recount what, what he has done for us. So in those hard times when, we're, when, we're, when our faith is being tested, we can look back and say, God, I know you are good because I know what you've done for me. As Habakkuk remembers that God is a God of love, he, he recounts that God, what God has done for him. Look what he does in, in verse three, in verse three right through until verse 17 where he gets to this point that we read at the start, where he gets to the point of rejoicing in the Lord. The rest of this chapter is, is Habakkuk looking back and recounting and remembering what God has done. Look at verse three. He says this, God came down from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. What's he talking about there? Well, the, the, where it says the Holy One from Mount Paran, Mount Paran was the mountain range in which Mount Sinai was in. And that's where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. So he's starting to recount the story of Moses and he's saying, God, I remember how you, how you came down and you gave Moses the Ten Commandments, how you taught us how to live. Verse four, his brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. On the mountain, God came down and descended upon it and you could see that the people, you can read um, in the story of Moses that the people could see, they could hear rolls of thunder, they could see flashes of lightning as God spoke to Moses and to the people. Verse five, before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. What's that talking about? It's remembering how God sent all the plagues upon Egypt to defeat Pharaoh and lead his people out of Egypt and allow them to go free. Here's the thing, you know what? If you were a slave under Pharaoh at that time, if you're getting beaten and whipped every day and told to work harder, and you're building this big Egyptian kingdom, I'm sure you were thinking, how on earth would God ever take me out of this situation? How on earth could God be at work in this? But yet God sends Moses and God sends these plagues and he shows that he was in command of every faction over the weather, over the sun and the moon, over the livestock, the very powers that would be in Pharaoh, even Pharaoh's heart, even though they were under a leadership of a man with a hardened heart to the Lord, God still demonstrated, I'm in control. Verse six, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. What's he talking about there? He's saying, if you're measuring up something, you're, you're gonna do something with it, right? If you're measuring a piece of wood, you're gonna, you're gonna cut it, you're gonna do something with it. You're in control of it. He's talking about how even God measured the earth and measured out a promised land for his people. Verse seven, I saw the tents of Kishan in affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. He's talking about how when the Israelites won many battles by the strength of the Lord and they were being given the promised land, these surrounding nations, 
They could even look at the people and say, wow, God's at work in them. He's not our God, but, but the God of the Israelites, the God of those people, he's at work. And, and the other people around them were trembling at God's might. And he keeps going and he recounts other battles and he looks at verse nine and he says, you stripped the sheath from your bow calling for many arrows. The mountains saw you and writhed. Verse 11, the sun and moon stood still in their place. He remembers even Joshua and the miracles God performed against the Amorites where Joshua, they were, they were battling the Amorites and they needed a full day of, of sunlight, a full day of light for them to defeat the army. Joshua cried out for the, for the moon and, and the sun to stand still and God made it happen. So the whole way through all of this, he's recounting, he's saying, God, I know you're good. God, I, I remember what you've done in the past. Look at verse 13, it's so key with what he says. He says, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Habakkuk saying, you're a God who saves your people. Even though there's hardship and struggles and trials, but among all of this, you always ultimately saved your people. You went out for the salvation of your people. Maybe that's something that you need to remember this morning. Even the hardships, the trials, the struggles that you're going through, that God has went out. God sent Jesus for the salvation of you, for, the, for this saving grace that you need in that situation, that God always saves his people. Here's the thing, Habakkuk at this time was looking back to the story of Moses because that was, a, that was the, the greatest salvation story that he knew. This was like, wow, yeah, we can see what God did for his people here. But you know what? The story of Moses was pointing to something so much greater. Like every Old Testament story does, it was, it was a reflection of the Messiah to come. It was pointing to, to the story of what Jesus would do. When you read about the, the transfiguration of Jesus, it was when Jesus went up with, with, with three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and, and he comes and he, he, Jesus is shining like the sun. He, he's revealed as the son of God, and there's two other people beside him. One is Elijah, and the other is Moses. Just as Elijah came and, and declared God's truth to many nations and to kings in his time, and, and Moses led his people out of Israel, and Jesus is in the middle and saying, I'm, this is what... This is what it was all pointing to. It's pointing to me. It's a reflection of who Jesus was, the ultimate Messiah to come, our, our saving grace, our, our savior. Here's the thing, when you think about the story of Moses and how it was pointing to Jesus, so many things you can pull out from that. I'm gonna run through a couple this morning. Think about it this way, okay? What, who was Moses? Moses was born as an, as an Israelite. Jesus was born as an Israelite. Moses, what, what did he have to do? He had to flee from a king as a little baby that we were trying to kill him. Remember, they, they put him in the basket and they put him in the river and he goes down the river. Jesus, when, when he was a baby, King Herod was trying to kill him. They had to flee into Egypt. Now, if, you've, if you know the story of Moses or if you've seen the movie, The Prince of Egypt, right? You, you know that he ends up in the palace with Pharaoh, but Moses steps down from royalty to lead his people out of slavery. Jesus steps down as the, the Lord of lords and the, the King of kings, steps out of heaven to come to this earth to lead us out of the bondage and slavery of sin. Moses spends 40 days in Mount Sinai and God's giving him the law and he's preparing to deliver the law to his people. Jesus spends 40 days in the desert preparing to deliver the heavenly law to begin his ministry. 
Moses' first sign before Pharaoh, what does he do? He puts down his staff and it turns into a snake, a serpent, and he picks it up to show that he has, he has power, he has dominion over, over the snake, over the serpent. What does Jesus do? And he's led into the desert and Satan comes and tempts him. Jesus doesn't give in. Jesus resists temptation. Jesus speaks over Satan and shows that he has dominion over Satan. Now, if you know the story of Moses where the Passover, Moses instructs the people to, to make a sacrifice, the, the lamb, a perfect lamb. And what do they have to do? They have to spread the blood on the doorpost so that when, when the angel of death comes over, when God's wrath is coming over the, the, the place to, to judge the people, they, he it sees the blood. They see the blood on the doorpost and God says, okay, those people are believing in me. It's by the blood of that lamb, by that sacrifice, they're saved. And he passes over. And when Jesus comes, Jesus' blood is spilled for us and it's displayed on posts of wood as Jesus was crucified on a cross. So the night when God looks at us, for those of us who have confessed Jesus as our Lord and Savior, it's by his blood that we are saved, that our sins are forgiven, that, that God's judgment, because it says that the punishment for sin, the wages of sin is death. But when we're believing in Jesus, that God looks and says that price has been paid in full by the blood of the lamb. When John the Baptist seen Jesus, what does he say? He says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Really quickly, I got a couple other ones for you. Just as Moses, as, as the Red Sea parts, and the people are led out of slavery, Jesus is on that cross and he dies. And the curtain in the Holy of Holies is parted, it's torn in two so that we have access to God. And then, as Moses leads the people out of Israel, God's told him that he won't enter the promised land, and Moses actually had to, to die for the people to, to go into the promised land. They're led by Joshua. Jesus had to die for us to be able to enter into our promised land. And what's our promised land? What's the promise of God that we're standing on? That one day we'll go to be in heaven with him. That Jesus said, Behold, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you in heaven, I'll, I'll come again and receive you, that where I am, there you may be also. It was always pointing to something greater. And just as Moses left Joshua to lead the people, Jesus, when he left the disciples, he said, it's better for me to leave because who's gonna come? The Holy Spirit is gonna come and lead you. So this morning for us, we can, we can look back at, our, uh, at the Old Testament stories of how God worked and saved his people and, and do that. That's so encouraging. We can learn so much from God and who he is. But just as Habakkuk look, took this story of Moses and, and seen how God had saved his people, that what we should do this morning is, is look at the ultimate salvation, the ultimate story of salvation in Jesus and who he is and remember that. And you know what? When we do that, when we realize who, who Jesus is, that no matter what happens to us in our lives here, no matter what struggles we're going through, no matter what situation our health is in or our spouse's health is in or, or our marriage or our finances or our kids or our jobs or whatever it is, that we can celebrate and say, I, I am known by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. My price has been paid in full. That we know that we're going to the promised land of heaven if we're believing, if we've confessed Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Because here's the thing, just, as, just like in the story of Moses, they were led out of slavery, led out of bondage, but then what do they do? They have to go through the desert for 40 years. They go through the desert 
of trials and temptations and struggles before they reach the promised land. That's like a reflection of our lives. The moment we, we know where we're going, that Jesus has promised us heaven if we're believing in him. But at this time, there's going to be trials. There's going to be struggles. There's going to be hard times. But that's what we can rejoice in this morning. We can rejoice in the Lord. It's our third point this morning. That Jesus came and defeated death and all of the temporary struggles of this world. That so no, so no matter what happens to us here on this earth, we still have access to God. We can still have a right relationship with him. And our life here, it's just for a season. And our hope and our strength and our joy is not in what happens to us in this life, but it's actually in the Lord. Because we know that even while we're in that desert place, that God, even now, is still with us. That God went out for the salvation of his people. That God went out for the salvation of you this morning. And one day we'll pass through that desert place and into the promised land of heaven where we'll be with our Lord and Savior forevermore. That's a joy that can never be broken. A joy that can never be taken from us, cannot be robbed or stolen away by the things of this world because it's a joy that's not off this world. So even amidst the, the heartache, the depression, the brokenness, the sickness, whatever it is, even amongst all of these things, we can come to a place in verse 17 where Habakkuk says, though, though this is in my life, though I'm in this situation, though I'm going through this trial, though I'm going through this struggle, Habakkuk says, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, produce off the olive fails, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off, he's painting the grimmest picture that he can think of. Paint the grimmest picture that you can think of this morning. And then verse 18, when we know our Lord and Savior, when we know Jesus, our heart can come to this place where it says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer. He takes me to new high places. He can take your faith to a new height this morning. Even this thing that maybe this morning you've been looking at it as such a, a hardship and a trial and a struggle and a hard thing, which it, which it is, which is okay to, to, to admit that it is, that it's hard, that it's difficult, but that our faith and our walk with the Lord can be taken to a new high place this morning, even in, even in the midst of that. That the righteous shall live by faith. And while Hebrews 11 says what faith is, Faith, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. If God's going to test our faith, if God's going to grow your faith this morning, guess what? Guess what situation you're going to be in? You're going to be in a situation where a lot of things are unseen. Where, a lot, where you find yourself crying out to God and saying, God, I don't know where you are. This doesn't make sense to me. Why? And God answers with Who? that's how our faith is tested. And it says that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness in the Lord. Easy to preach. Easy to say that. So much harder to live it out. But my prayer for us is that we can find joy in the Lord. 
even when we're crying, even when we're heartbroken, even when we're going through the emotions and the, and the strains of the situation that we're in, that we can still find a joy in our soul in the Lord. Like I said, easy to preach, but harder to live out. And so this morning, I actually want to invite a couple up. You know well, John and Melinda, and they're actually going to share a little bit just of how, how they've walked this journey. And we're not bringing them up on stage here to say, look at, look at the perfect couple that's got it all figured out. As you'll hear in their story, they're still going through a trial and a struggle and a hard time. But even amidst that, we'll hear how, how God's been at work in their heart and in their lives as, as a couple this morning. So, John and Melinda, thank you for, thanks for coming up here this morning. Thanks for being willing to share your heart with us. So, I'm just gonna ask you a couple of questions and, and let you uh, share. So, feel free to just introduce yourselves and tell us, tell us a little bit about your backstory and, and what's been going on in your lives. Um, I'm Melinda. Yeah. I'm Melinda, and this is my husband, John. Um, we've been married for almost seven years, and we've always been a good match. If you know us, you know that our personalities are completely opposite, <laughs> but our interests are so similar, along with our values and many of the hopes and dreams we've had for our life together. This included our desire to have a family. We each have three siblings and knew that we wanted to have a house full of kids. We started to try for a family about six years ago, and I really thought it would be easy for two main reasons. Uh, the first one is that my mother never had any trouble getting pregnant, and more importantly, the Lord knew how important this desire was to me, so I believed he would give me the desires of my heart as I trusted in him. Months turned into years, and it just wasn't happening. I didn't really know what was normal, so we probably waited longer than we could have to get help, but then everything turned into waiting. Waiting for test results, waiting for appointments, medical procedures, waiting for answers, and waiting on the Lord. Nothing worked. Um, over the last two years, we've also been renovating a house and living with my parents, so we weren't in a position where we could seriously consider adoption yet. Last spring, we were accepted for one round of IVF, which is in vitro fertilization. Uh, after part of the procedure, we had to go home and wait six days to see what our chances would be. As the week progressed, our chances continued to diminish, and by the end of the week, we were left with just one embryo. That week was extremely difficult. It was like watching all of my dreams die and plans for a big family along with it. As we believe life begins at conception, this was still the closest we've come to a part of John and a part of me beginning to be knit together. But I still had hope. A friend had recently gotten pregnant from IVF the month prior, and she had also only had one embryo. After the transfer, I kept telling myself, you only need one, it only takes one. So when they called to say the results were negative, I was crushed. I was crushed by the results, but I was also crushed in that I had really hoped. It was the first time in years that I had allowed myself to hope in anything, and it wrecked me. It felt so dangerous to hope. I remember crying to John and cr to my mom and to friends that I just felt so stupid for hoping. Mm. Wow, so, so where, did your, where did your heart go in the midst of that, that trial and that struggle with God? 
by the point of our IVF, so that was last spring, um, we were about five years into our struggle and I was in a pretty dark place. I had created such an idol of wanting to be a mother that it had infected my heart and affected my walk with the Lord and my whole life in so many ways. John and I struggled to love each other well because we were both so raw and hurting a lot of the time. I was completely overwhelmed working at my job over 60 hours a week, trying to find time for our home renovation, dealing with bad tenants in our rental unit, um, and many other stresses in life. At church, I felt lonely and left out of everyone else's lives as they were moving on and having children, and I felt like I was completely stuck. I continued to believe in God, and I could even believe he was good. I just failed to see how he was good to me. I struggled with being depressed and anxious. In my suffering, I wanted to know if I was just a slow learner, um, if I was being taught something that I had to learn before God would stop withholding his blessings from me, um, which is a pretty slippery slope down to was he punishing me. I would compare myself to others and I fell into a terrible cycle of jealousy, resentment and bitterness towards God and towards others, which then led to self-loathing believing that I should have know, be, known better and I should be better than that. I never met my paternal grandfather because my dad comes from a line of men who always passed away before they ever met their grandkids. And I used to work myself up into panic attacks, believing I could never forgive myself if my father passed away before I could give him grandkids. I would cast all of my cares and anxieties onto my own shoulders and I was trying to carry it all myself. It was like the enemy knew exactly where my thorn was, um, and then he was pressing it and twisting it and making it hurt more. I wanted the life that everyone else seemed to have, and I couldn't see any blessings in my own life. I would help plan and attend beautiful baby showers, and then on the drive home, I'd be bawling my eyes out where I'd have to call John um, so he could calm me down so I could drive safely. It can be hard to be a member of a really fertile church. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was even jealous in kind of crazy situations. The deeper down you go in your despair, the more able you are to convince yourself that you have it worse than anyone else. You think that you have the trump card in suffering. Who else has the audacity to call their own life hard and their suffering difficult? Um, so I'd have friends who were going through fertility struggles and I'd think three years, how dare they complain? We've been trying for five or people going through struggles for their second child and I'd resent them because that they'd see that as a struggle because to me, at least they already had one kid. Um, it all sounds kind of crazy when I say it out loud, but even Jenna, if you were here last, last week, you heard about Jenna's sto story about being in the hospital. Um, I've known Jenna and love Jenna since she was a gangly 14 year old. When she was in the hospital struggling to do anything, to be alive, um, I'd pray for her, and I'd text her encouraging messages and funny Jimmy Fallon videos, and then I'd cry out to God that I would give anything to be the one suffering in the hospital if it meant I could have a baby. I was jealous of her. I was jealous of all the support around her while I felt like I was suffering alone. When you give Satan a foothold in your heart, um, he will not stop trying to steal, kill, and destroy it in any way possible. He's looking to devour you, and he was certainly doing a good job with me. Um, as part of my counseling, I had to try to write a psalm to God, and I thought I could maybe share some of it with you, um, because I think it's easier to use my words from last summer when I was right in the midst of my deepest suffering. 
All the while, the trials I continue to pass through, the sadness and suffering and loneliness that threaten to overwhelm me to suffocate me. I have felt so close to the end for so long. I have felt so far from you, O oh God, that it seems too much to bear. I've lost my trust in you and in your plans for me and my life and my future and in your goodness to me. I've pulled myself back from those who love you to protect my heart. I have put too much hope in the plans and desires I have for myself and not enough hope in you. I have resented and envied those who seem to get what they desire and wondered why you don't bless me with the same gifts. I have been so ruled by my feelings and emotions that I can hardly identify and much less cling to your truths in my life. God, I know you hear me when I cry out, but I don't, fe I don't feel it. I'm not at the point where I can let go of my dream and what I think is best for me. In theory, I know your plans are the right ones, the best ones for me. But in my heart, I can't begin to fathom that the best plans for me could be for me not to be a mother. How could I ever truly believe that? But God, will this be a wall I keep in place so that I can never truly come back to you? Wow, so, so just quickly, Melinda, to, to finish up, where did, where did you find your hope amidst all of the, the trial and the storm and the, the low place that you were in? Where did your, where did your hope come from? Um, well, as you can kind of understand, my response in the trials wasn't always pretty or nice. I was disobedient to God. I pulled away and rejected friends who were trying to help me. Um, but God didn't stop pursuing me, even in all of this brokenness and ugliness. I wrestled with him and I questioned him and I never really got all the answers. But at some point, I began really saying to God, there must be more of you than I'm currently experiencing. My heart resonated with Peter's when Christ asked the 12 disciples if they were gonna desert him and Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I felt like I was in the deepest pit or valley, but I knew Christ was there with me. John and I prayed, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I went uh, to biblical counseling and I participated in hope group through the church. Proverbs 27.7 says, one who is full loathes honey, but to the one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. So God met me in my emptiness and hunger and he began to show me how all the bitterness in my life could be used for his glory. We began to realize that while we were suffering from a physical ailment, it didn't have to be a spiritual affliction. I could give up this idol and seek Jesus first. A child will not ever be able to bear the weight of my soul. Only Christ can do that. Our barrenness in infertility did not have to be tied to spiritual barrenness in our walks with the Lord. My heart did not have to remain broken, closed, or distant from the Lord. Um, we often give an analogy of our spiritual walk of being down in the valley or the pit as a physical place, so then we mistakenly tie that to our physical circumstances. But what if the circumstances didn't change? Could I allow God to pull me out of the pit and to help me climb uphill out of the valley in my spiritual walk, despite physically still being broken? Could I let him take me, to, take me higher than before as he renewed my heart and strengthened my character? I'm making this into a little hike in the mountains picture here, but really this sanctification feels more like what Peter calls the mighty hand of the Lord pressing down on me. Um, I also wrote these words in my journal this past winter. God is taking me and making me new, but it's almost breaking me. It's the refiner's fire. All of the impurities are coming to the surface and it's ugly, but they will be burnt away. As Job said, I will come forth as gold. 
I've always loved the story about Jesus healing the blind man in John 9 when the disciples asked Jesus who sinned, the man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus replies, neither, but that the glory of God could be displayed in him. I think that I liked to consider myself one day being healed of this and getting pregnant so we could finally say we understood the question of why and we could hold our baby and say, here's why, to display the glory of God and look how God has blessed us. But this is not my big pregnancy reveal and we're still in the trial and the suffering. I want to reiterate that our circumstances have not changed. For some of you or us, our circumstances may never turn out the way we want them to. What feels like a weight from God might actually turn out to be a no. I haven't got a full explanation of why everything we've gone through has happened, but through it, God has revealed himself. I've learned we don't have to wait for the glory of God to be displayed in us, and it doesn't have to come in our situation with a positive pregnancy test or a court approving an adoption. Hope and healing and blessing in our situation are not the actual physical healing of an empty womb, empty spare rooms, and empty arms. But here is God's glory being displayed. It is a heart turns towards Christ, a heart that submits to God's plan and his timing and that trusts in him and his goodness for me. My hands are open to him. I'll continue to lay down this idol at the foot of the cross, and I can say it is well with my soul. Amen. Wow. Guys, thank you so much for, for sharing your heart and sharing your story, and I know that's hard for you to do, but um, one encouragement and a blessing it is to see how God's revealing himself to you, how God's showing himself to you, even in the, the hardest struggle and the hardest time. I'm just, I'm just gonna ask you to stand. I'd love to pray um, with you, and feel free to join in with us here as we, we pray over John and, and Melinda. Heavenly Father, I thank you that that you're a God who reveals himself time and time again. Father, I thank you for this testimony of, of the struggle and the hardship and the trial that, that John and Melinda have been in and, and actually continue to be in. Father, I thank you that they have found a hope and a joy that's in you. Father, I thank you that you have revealed yourself to them. Father, I pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to them. Father, would they find their hope and their joy in you? Father, would you continue to take their faith to a new height? Would they be a demonstration of how you use even the physical circumstances, the valleys, the hard times that, that we look at and say, God, where are you? That you use that to display who you are, that you use that even in itself to, to bring them and bring us to a new height of faith. Father, I pray that you would continue to be with John and Melinda, continue to walk through this, continue to, to reveal yourself to them. And Father, would their hearts be attentive to, to continue to seek you, to continue to, to question and wrestle with you. Father, would you continue to reveal yourself in a way that only you can. I thank you that they're up here this morning and though it's hard, though it's difficult, though it can bring tears, the Father, there's a joy in their heart that they can say as a couple that it is well with their soul. Thank you for that, Father. Father, I pray that we'll just continue to, to be with them, continue to be with us as we continue in our service here this morning. It's in your son's name that, that this is made possible, and it's in your son's name, in the name of Jesus, that we ask these things. Amen.